This is Culturally Attuned. Brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace in partnership with Burning Man Project. In his world, he can understand getting locked up for what he did or this woman wanting her money back. He, he could not really believe after all the hardship he'd been through that Lisa actually cared about what he thought and felt. How many of us, if we are victims of a violent crime, would be willing to work with the perpetrator to make restitution? How many of us would invest the time to connect with the person who hurt us and make efforts to reconcile and heal? It would take a lot of fortitude by both parties. I'm Dominic Carely, and today we'll hear about the courageous work of our guest, Roman Hayford, who facilitates these types of reconciliation processes. Roman recounts a powerful story of personal transformation between Lisa, a victim of a crime, and Dion, the perpetrator. As they work together towards restorative justice, each confronted not just the other person, but all the cultural, ethnic, and economic differences that had shaped their lives. To heal, they both had to struggle to understand and communicate with each other across those differences. My name is Roman Hayford, and I am the restorative justice coordinator at the Office of the Attorney General in Washington, D.C., and that's the prosecutor's office in Washington, D.C. My role is I help lead a team of facilitators who actually work hand-in-hand with prosecutors to give victims of crime the option of doing what's called restorative justice instead of traditional prosecution when they've become the victim of a crime. And so what that looks like is when someone's been victimized by a crime, our office will meet with them, me or my team will meet with them, and we'll ask them what they need, how they're feeling, what's going on for them. And then we will give them the option, if it's appropriate, of working toward an in-person meeting with the person who harmed them and their families. So families and supporters and the people directly involved. So that in that conversation, the direct empathizing, the direct question and answer, and a mutual agreement for how to resolve this harm can be reached. And so me and my team of facilitators call that process restorative justice. In seeking restorative justice, An important factor is the personal sense of identity of both victims and perpetrators. And culture is a critical factor in shaping our identities. Cultural divides are prominent even in the same country or the same city. Restorative justice helps bridge these cultural divides. I may have stories that involve people from different countries and stuff like that, but I I like that in my work in D.C., doing restorative justice work between young people who are accused of crimes and those who've been victimized by those harms. Um, It's very local, but the divide between cultures is no less great. And one example of that, we'll call this young man Dion. He had stolen, uh, violently stolen a iPhone from a woman who happened, who was a white woman, um, in her maybe 40s, and Dion is, say, uh, 15 at the time. In fact, I think he was younger than that. I think he was 14 at the time. So he steals um, the cell phone, kind of roughs her up, and 
the case comes to our office, comes to my office for restorative justice. Now, mind you, Dion is a 14-year-old Black boy living in poverty in Southeast D.C., or, or near poverty, let's put it that way. I remember he had housing insecurity. He had educational insecurity in that he's not regularly attending school. Um, he's transferring different schools based on housing insecurity and things like that. And his relationship to an adult who has um, sort of stability and responsibility over him is tenuous. Okay. Um, now, Lisa, on the other hand, is a white woman in her 40s, not originally from D.C., like many adults in Washington, D.C., professional. She's a transplant here, originally from Kansas, I believe it was, you know, and is working in the federal government or a nonprofit as an executive. So her level of she does not have, you know, educational insecurity. She's part of what makes this one of the most educated and privileged zip code in the, in the, on the planet. Um, but right across the river, still inside DC where Dion lives is a completely different picture. And so she is agreeing to do restorative justice instead of regular prosecution. So she's feeling good about herself and, and thinks herself to be, um, progressive and, and open to, um, resolving this in a non-traditional sort of heart-based way. And so that's where I come in. So I'm facilitating between the two, between Lisa and Dion to try to resolve this. And um, Lisa ended up wanting two things. She wanted Dion to work off the amount of money and pay her back for the phone that he stole, which is very reasonable and common. And from a, you know, from a, mainstream, you know, Midwestern background, that's, that's exactly what he should do. And he should be happy to do it. And the other thing that she wanted was a letter from Dion explaining why he did what he did and what he's learned from this process. That actually came a little later, but for the sake of the story, she wanted those two things. And the story goes that Dion, we bring these two people together after prepping them for this conversation. And this is over a couple months where I am the intermediary trying to translate what Lisa, where Lisa's coming from to Dion and where Dion's coming from to Lisa, Lisa. And we get to the conference and Dion actually agrees to do what he can to pay back the phone. And he actually gets an internship um, or ha had some sort of internship, which is a monumental thing over the summer for a kid his age. Um, and he ends up giving his first paycheck to Lisa for this phone, which is only about a third of what the phone costs. As a restorative justice facilitator, I am incredibly proud of Dion for doing this. This is a monumental thing to show accountability and follow through and give all the money he's earned legitimately to this person who he harmed doing something which happens on the daily amongst his peers. After that first payment, his life took a drastic turn for the worst, which we see a lot with high-risk youth in a place like Washington, D.C. His parents assumed to their addictions. He was separated from his parents. He was put into a group home. These are all highly traumatic things for Dion. And so Lisa's wondering, where is my next check? <laughs> and I'm trying to explain to Lisa, okay, Dion is no longer with his parents. He is... Um, 
extremely traumatized by this and also by his own adolescence in a violence-ridden city. He's Many of his friends are carrying guns. He's under pressure to carry guns around. He's under pressure to commit more robberies. Um, as far as I know, he's not doing that, which is great. But this thing that he agreed to you, even though it might seem extremely important to you, and he does care about it on some level, his psyche is overwhelmed by these other pressures in his life. And so part of my job sometimes is working with victims to help humanize and be realistic about the, the, the people who they're seeking accountability from. Uh, a year later, um, I'm still working between the two of them. Uh, this is the, the end of the story. Uh, we come to a year later and Lisa f- ends up appreciating through communicating with Dion through me that some of the things that are going on in his life and she does not, no longer expects him to repay the full amount of the phone. She's like, that's not really what's important to me. But this letter is still really important. To me. So I say, okay, well, I'm going to talk to Dion about that letter. So I go to Dion again. Now he's living in a shelter home. He's been separated from his parents. He's, this is during COVID. So he's there with one other kid. He's not able to leave. So his days look like playing video games all day or trying to do school at a shelter home. Um, and he's a completely different kid from when I first met him. But he's still got, you know, he's still got that. I see the, the light in his eyes, but he's been through a lot. He's kind of gained some weight. He doesn't really look me in the eye as much. And I explained to him, you know, you remember that that woman who we've been keeping in touch with from the Restorative Justice Conference? And Dan says, yeah, I remember her. It's like, she, you know, she really wants to complete this, you know, this whole thing. And he's like, well, I didn't, I didn't, you know, she knows I can't pay, you know? And I'm like, I know that. And she's actually okay with that. Um, but she still really wants to hear from you. You remember that letter that she talked about? And, and this happens a lot. For Lisa, and this is the, the, the cultural competency lesson here that I was, that it became my job to facilitate. For Lisa, the idea of writing an apology letter is very reasonable, very normal. I mean, we, we do that all the time as educated adults or even as kids in school. Like that seems, um, but for a kid like Dion, who is, does not have um, necessarily mentors in his life who are taking accountability say, his parents, for the things that have happened to him. The idea of apology is also a very triggering thing um, because who has apologized to him? Number one. Number two, writing and expressing yourself through writing is, and, 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 you know, in, in a long form is probably something he's very self-conscious about. Remember, he's got educational in, instability. He is not necessarily comfortable with that exercise. And above all, he honestly could not understand why this was important to her. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that in his world, you know, perhaps it's what are the brass tacks? He can understand getting locked up for what he did or this woman wanting her money back. He, he could not really believe after all the hardship he'd been through that Lisa actually cared about what he thought and felt. Again, as privileged, loved, cared for, 
people in society, many of us, hopefully all of us who are listening to this, have parents who love us, brothers and sisters who love us, and we experience that love. We are acculturated to believing that what we feel, what we think, our expressions matter. But a lot of young people I work with um, who get criminalized in the criminal justice system don't experience that. In fact, that's one of the main factors leading to their criminalization. So in this interaction, this crucial dynamic, he couldn't understand that generally, let alone from this educated, wealthy white woman carrying around an iPhone 12 who makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, who's completely culturally um, different from him. And so this was a beautiful opportunity. And I said, I sat down with him. I said, actually, it does matter to her. And here's why. Because what you did to her forms a relationship, whether you like it or not. And that's why she's continued to stay in touch with you over the year. And believe it or not, she's asking me every couple of weeks how you're doing uh, because it matters to her. And he's listening to this and all this. And he says, well, well, let me just talk to her. <laughs> I said, okay. And uh, so I called her up and I said, do you want to talk to Tia? And she said, okay. So they're talking and she's asking him questions about how things are going. And it goes okay for a, a couple of minutes. Uh, but then she, she, I think she asked, she must've asked him about, about the letter and he might've tried to divert or might've shut down. And she asked him to give the phone back to me. And she said, this, this isn't going so well. And I said, why not? She said, because he doesn't, he's, he's not really responding to this thing. And I, this is kind of a simple thing. So then Lisa's getting frustrated again. And so I said, okay, that's okay. You've done, you've, you've done the important thing here. He's heard from you. So we hang up the phone and I said, I asked him, I said, do you see what I mean? Like it, it does actually matter to her. And he's still thinking about it. He's thinking about it. Mind you, I had brought to this meeting three different journals, uh, blank journals for him to choose to write in, to write his letter to her. So I, I, I bring out these journals and I let him choose one and he chooses one and he reluctantly starts to write. And he writes a couple of paragraphs. It's about a half an hour. He gives them to me. I give him some feedback, some critique, and now he's getting into it. So now he's writing some more. He gives me back the letter. He's written a few more things. He's scratching some things out. He's rewriting. And I'm telling him, you know what? This is going to be a great thing for you to save. You know, you, you're going to want to keep this for all, you know, for, for your exit interview at your shelter house, for your reunification interview with your parents, for the next time you're applying to high school you're going to want to keep this letter because this is a writing sample now. He's like, really? What's that? I'm like, it's a writing sample. It shows, you know, it's a, it's a part of your body of work. It's like your brand. And now his eyes are lighting up. He's like, let me see that other journal. He's finishing this letter to her. He's, he is, um, he, I'll tell you, it's rarely that I sit with a kid, sit next to a kid without, without him being on their phone, without him looking up, watching him writing that, letter was one of the most memorable experiences I've had as a restorative justice facilitator. So he finishes the letter and I deliver it to Lisa. Um, and she sends back photos of, of her new baby for me to give to Dion and, um, and show him and that, you know, that her, her life has also moved on. She's, she's changing, but I don't think she would have been comfortable doing that if, if he hadn't been able to do this thing, which seems so simple to her. But I also give Lisa a lot of credit in this story because Lisa initially, of course, was extremely frustrated um, 
by the fact that the simple request, I mean, for God's sakes, you violently stole my cell phone. You committed a felony and you can't even write me a letter. By the end of this story, she really understood that, gosh, this kid is going through so much. This kid's been traumatized. He's not the same kid that I met necessarily. And she recognized how big of a big of an effort it took for him to have to trust in what she was asking for. Restorative justice in this case is not an isolated event, but rather a process of transformation rooted in connection. And for Dion and Lisa, this took time, requiring tremendous amounts of patience with each other and trust in Roman's facilitated process. We asked Roman how he discovered restorative justice as an alternative method of resolving violations and conflict, a process so different from the traditional criminal justice system. I went to a very well-resourced law school. I was part of the criminal defense clinic as a third year, which, which meant I learned very deeply how to be a trial lawyer within the criminal justice system. And I never once heard the term restorative justice. So when I had become a little bit disillusioned with our adversarial justice system, and I was looking for ways to innovate and allow people to communicate with each other through conflict in a way that wasn't so adversarial, the people in my life directed me toward this thing called restorative justice, which at the time was still somewhat more nascent in this country. Um, it certainly wasn't being done um, in many formal government offices. But I learned about restorative justice. And I said, this is great. This is what I've been looking for. This is what allows us to resolve conflict in a non-adversarial, but in a unitive way. We're creating new formats, new platforms for mediating conflict formally in society and informally, because it starts with informal you know, it goes back to indigenous and, and early, earlier tribal humans, the way they resolved conflicts when they couldn't afford to throw people in jails. There were no jails. They couldn't afford to punish their way out of harm and conflict. They had to recognize that we're all part of a community. And so the harm against one is the harm against the community, and it's up to the community to resolve it. Martin Luther King Jr. would say that justice is love in action, right? And what we're drawing from when we practice restorative justice is really we're drawing from a lens of how to view people in community and how to view conflict. The word justice, uh, if you look at the word justice, there's ways we can be critical of it because it's a word that is kind of a creature of the sort of Western liberal um, devoid of emotions um, practice of mediating conflict. So the justice system is supposed to be emotionless. We're supposed to objectively, you know, adjudicate uh, rights and responsibilities between, you know, reasonable actors in society. Restorative justice is all about the heart. It's all about empathy. It's all about utilizing our emotional intelligence and, and mo most importantly, acknowledging emotions, both of people who are harmed and people who have done the harm, because it's for all sorts of reasons, mainly because we're human beings, but also because it's those things that connect us um, in community. It's those things that help us perhaps transcend culture. The, the, our currency as restorative justice facilitators is emotions, is emotional 
empathy, is care, is what hurt, you know, why did this matter? You know, were you angry? Were you fearful? Because no matter where you're coming from, whether you're an executive at a nonprofit or whether you're a young kid in tr- struggling through adolescence in DC, those emotions we all understand and we can all relate to. You might not necessarily be able to relate to the Fourth Amendment rights and responsibilities in the adversarial system, but you can relate to those, those, those feelings that you had when you were doing whatever you were doing. And actually, the research shows whether you're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, which we also use in our, in our, um, in our program, the more that, that young people are able to reflect on that and given the space to process those emotions of what, why were you doing what you were doing, the, the, the more likely they are to be able to control that behavior themselves in the future, which from a research perspective, we would call recidivism, you know, reducing recidivism. Dion and Lisa share the same nationality, but their cultures are quite different and their life experiences were foreign to each other. Roman shares his thoughtful reflections on what creates cultural difference. In my work, what creates cultural difference, which I think we've seen in these stories, is I think how one has been treated vis-a-vis their own emotional worth and experience is a big one. So people come into a situation like having been harmed or, or being arrested and how they might react as they go through that process and the, the sort of cultural norms that they embody, that they borrow, that they have express. A lot of that has to do with how have you been treated? What have you learned about how society, how your parents, how police um, have treated you in terms of how much your experience, your emotional experience, your ideas, your feelings matter, your well-being. How much does your well-being matter? How much does your safety matter? The answer to those questions for each one of us determines a lot of our cultural norms in, for example, crisis situations or dangerous situations or situations of violence. In, in an urban setting, for example. If you've been taught that your experience, your safety matters a lot, having a cell phone stolen from you is a huge deal. If you've been taught, and that the world must stop, you know, to rectify this harm, or at least someone's life has to stop. In particular, in specifically, you know, the prosecutors and the person who harmed me. But if you're, if you've been treated, if you've been, condition to believe that violence is all around me. It's happening to me all the time without accountability. And the only way for me to, the best way for me to survive is by threatening violence in my own ways, micro or macro. And then you might not react the same way to committing violence on someone else or to being confronted with having committed violence on someone else, or it might take some work to bridge that cultural difference. And notice the thing about this is that we have, we have moral judgments about those two, those two sort of expressions, but each one comes from something that has nothing to do with us. It has, has everything to do with how you have been conditioned, how you've been treated, what you've learned about 
how much your experience matters. So that's how I would answer that question. Roman shares his thoughts on how restorative justice relates to peace building. If I had to put my finger on like, what, what really is it that we're doing? I would say we are relearning with, with communities how to communicate with people with whom we have conflict, you know, how to communicate better, uh, communicate at all with someone, um, a, a traditional adversary, right? That to me is what I would think is the, is the relationship or, or one commonality between kind of restorative justice work and, and practice and mindset and what I take is would be kind of a peace building mindset is developing norms around communicating at all and communicating in ways that are constructive uh, with folks who would be a traditional adversary like someone who's harmed me or like someone from a different tribe Roman's work with Dion and Lisa demonstrates the power of courageous people committed to healing, reconciliation, and peace. Too often, people can't find a way to connect, assuming that those they face across a divide are completely different. Restorative justice can help create conditions in which the perpetrator and victim can communicate and find the means to understand each other. Moreover, Roman demonstrated that cross-cultural encounters don't just happen in foreign countries but rather with people all around us, in our own community, in different parts of our own city, who may live nearby, but have very different life experiences than us. With patience, humility, and empathy, we can bridge divides and build stronger relationships and communities. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culturally Attuned. I'm Dominic Curley at the United States Institute of Peace. Thanks to our partner, Burning Man Project. Thank you.